Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 270. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is in a festive and fine and dandy mood, I hope you really are. Tell you what's coming to today's show, we have Fact Article by Mr JJ Campanella. Then we jump straight in with Cheapskates, Adam Piot, with his little review there. Then we have part two of The Boneless One. This is the story by Alec Navala Lee. Then right at the end, I have a little chat, a little meta talk, which I get annual little talk there, which I do, sitting around the campfire there. And a little chat for about 25 minutes, just everything that's gone in 2002, a little bit of how I feel and, you know, what I'm looking forward to this year and next year. Looking forward to this year. Looking forward to what's happening in next year. I've got some nice, cool ideas. So that is... Show 270 on this festive day. I hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So I think we'll kick this festive season off straight away with Mr. JJ Campanella. Jim, sir, Merry Christmas to you. Post-apocalyptic Christmas greetings and salvation, my extra-refined listeners, and welcome to this December 2012 Science News Update. I'm your host for this innovative, old, eg-wagey science podcast, Jim Campanella. Well... Did you survive the Mayan end of the world? Yeah, well, me too. Even most of us living in New Jersey survived. Um, I'll refrain from saying I told you so to all you who were predicting this was the big one. But uh, science won again. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, I got carried away. Sorry. We may blow up tomorrow. We may blow up the next day. But December 21st, 2012 was just not it. I guess the guy who was making that Mayan calendar just got tired of carving, after all. Just to keep up with the theme of doom and destruction, let me pass along a question that regular listener Paul Hauser emailed to me. Paul wanted to know how the seagrass population off the coast of Jersey fared after Hurricane Sandy. Paul asked this because he remembered my role in studying the population genetics of the species. I told him that I am a lab guy and not a field biologist, and I frankly had no idea. But I would pass the question along to one of my collaborators, Dr. Paul Bologna, who is a conservation biologist. I did this, and Dr. Bologna told me that he has not been out on Barnegat Bay since the storm blew through. However, he did give me his thoughts on how the Zostera marina populations managed. He pointed out to me that Zostera are usually in deeper water from 5 to 10 feet in depth, and that even with storm surges, minimal damage was likely to occur. His basis for that assessment was that Zostera have thick, fibrous root systems that are heavily interlocked by rhizomes. 
Essentially, the stems of the grasses are held to the bottom by a mat of heavily interlaced roots. Since the plant would be held in place so well, Zostera would have been pushed flat by the storm surges, but not pulled out of the soil. However, Bologna pointed out to me that even though Zostera probably did fine, other seagrass species were probably decimated. The species Rubia, for instance, was probably ripped up wholesale because that plant has very shallow root systems that do not interlock like Zostera does. Well, Paul, there's my answer. In spring, we'll see just how much damage actually occurred out there. The first official story of the night is so damn weird that I just had to pass it along. I am still not sure how to take it at all, actually. Texas veterinarian Dr. Melba Ketchum says that she has sequenced the genome of Bigfoot. This work has not been published in any scientific journal, and it has not met with any academic scrutiny at all. It was released in a press release. Now, what did I say a couple of months ago about the pitfalls of releasing scientific data in that manner? Uh, yeah, I think my words were, it's a bloody bad idea. Ketchum says that she has sequenced Bigfoot based on samples of hair and tissues that were collected in the woods all over North America. No, she does not say that she has directly sampled Bigfoot for DNA. Now, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? According to her press release, Ketchum's team sequenced 20 whole mitochondrial genomes and three whole nuclear genomes from the purported Sasquatch samples. Now remember that mitochondria are the tiny generators found in each cell that supply power. They actually carry their own DNA inside of them. In mammals, the mitochondria, along with the DNA, is almost always inherited directly from the maternal line, not from the paternal line. Ketchum allegedly found that her Sasquatch's mitochondrial DNA was identical to that of modern humans, but that the nuclear DNA was a, quote, novel unknown hominid resulting from males of an unknown hominid species that contained distinctly non-human, non-archaic, hominid, and non-ape sequences, unquote. So I guess that Ketchum is saying that this Bigfoot is some sort of anthropoid hybrid? That statement from her press release is nothing if not opaque. I have no idea if that is what she was getting at, but if she is or was, then it poses a biological problem that she would not be able to explain. Namely, if Sasquatch is a hybrid between a primate more distant from the great apes and humans, their genomes would be incompatible. They wouldn't be able to reproduce. So they would not exist in the first place. Ketchum's logic leaves a bit to be desired. It's possible that Ketchum actually did sequence Bigfoot, but it's more likely that she sequenced just plain trash. My colleagues who do environmental forensics work tell me that it's actually pretty easy to pick up human mitochondrial DNA because of ubiquitous contamination, and that the nuclear DNA could represent environmental noise, more contamination of yeast or fungi or other microorganisms, very common occurrences for any forensic sample. To do the work correctly, you need to have fairly clean environmental samples, do lots of controls, and have very specific sequencing reactions for what you're looking for. Also, the kind of computer sequence analysis that you need to do can be easily misinterpreted or confused. I've done them for years now myself, and I still get tagged when I turn in research to a journal with a paper and uh, make a mistake. 
as a colleague of mine pointed out, your DNA analysis is only as good as what goes into the program to be analyzed. Garbage in and garbage out, as the computer code monkeys say. Well, Ketchum says that her work is being peer-reviewed right now, so we may yet see what her results look like. Certainly, I will not make any prejudgments here until the data becomes publicly available. Wow, my next story came out just today. The Nobel Prize Committee is being sued by Dr. Rongjiang Zhu. Dr. Zhu alleges that the Nobel Assembly incorrectly credited the winners of the 2012 Prize in Medicine or Physiology for stem cell research that he actually pioneered a decade earlier. If you did not follow the Nobel Prizes this year, Drs. John Gurdon and Shinya Yamanaka won the 2012 Nobel Prize in Medicine or Physiology for the discovery that mature cells can be reprogrammed to become pluripotent. That's a major breakthrough because it was thought that once animal cells matured, they were stuck at the end of whatever developmental program they were following. That is, heart cells could only be heart cells, lung cells only lung cells, brain cells only brain cells, etc. The award recognized Gurdon's 1962 discovery that a cell's maturation could be reversed, and then Yamanaka's 2006 discovery of how to reprogram mature cells into less developed cells. Zhu says that he discovered Yamanaka's breakthrough in the 1980s. He says that published research in 1984 demonstrated that stable differentiated cells could be reverted to a pluripotent state. Additionally, Zhu states that in 2000, he and his research team allegedly awakened intact mature somatic cells to turn into pluripotent stem cells without any genetic engineering techniques such as Yamanaka performed. Therefore, Zhu claims that the Nobel statement undermines his accomplishments and defames his reputation. Zhu insists that the suit is not sour grapes because he did not get the Nobel Prize. He says, quote, My main interest is in rehabilitating my dominant position as the owner-slash-pioneer of the scientific achievement characterized in the publication at issue, unquote. Zhu demands a jury trial to determine whether the Nobel Assembly owes him financial damages in the millions and whether it should repeal parts of its descriptions of Gurdon's and Yamanaka's prize-winning work. Do I have any thoughts on this nonsense? Hmm. My mama said, if you don't have anything good to say about somebody, don't say nothing at all. You know, that's pretty good advice. I suspect that many of you have heard the next story, but if you have not, according to Dr. David Page of NASA, frozen water can actually be detected on the planet Mercury. Page published this research work in the journal Science at the end of November. To me, this is just incredible, because if you had asked me to bet which planet was least likely to have water, Mercury would have been my number one choice. Page's observations of Mercury's northern polar regions come from the MESSENGER spacecraft, which is orbiting Mercury. The MESSENGER has a laser altimeter, which maps the planet's topography and measures how reflective the surface is. Simulations of Mercury's surface temperatures match the laser measurements, and inside shadowy, steep-walled craters, temperatures are below minus 173 degrees Celsius. So cold that frozen water can certainly exist there. There are shiny areas in those deep-walled craters that coincide with regions predicted to be cold enough for ice to be stable. 
while dark areas coincide with warmer regions thought to harbor ice only beneath the surface. Page says, quote, Another line of evidence for frozen water comes from Messenger's neutron spectrometer, which detects how much hydrogen, and therefore presumably water, is present. Cosmic rays constantly bombard Mercury's surface, breaking apart atomic nuclei and scattering neutrons. When the neutrons collide with hydrogen, they lose energy and grind to a halt like a cue ball hitting a billiard ball, unquote. The dearth of neutrons detected near Mercury's North Pole suggests a lot of hydrogen lies just below the planet's surface, almost certainly as pure ice. The mass of ice could be up to a trillion metric tons. Mercury has an average surface temperature of about 400 degrees Celsius. So how can water, let alone ice, survive there? Well, one of the reasons that the ice could be present at the poles is that Mercury does not tilt on its axis the way the Earth does. Mercury's rotation axis is scarcely tilted. It's less than one degree from being totally upright relative to the sun. That means that the planet never points its poles at the sun. The ice and any organic compounds that would be at the bottom of a deep polar crater would remain there in permanent shadow. If Mercury has been in this upright position since its birth over 4 billion years ago, it's possible that the ice preserved there could be truly primordial, dating back to the origin of the solar system. Next story. Back when I was a kid, one of the popular books was the weird proto-new-agey tome by Eric von Daniken called The Chariots of the Gods. The proposal in von Daniken's book can be simplified that all early human history can be seen through the lens of space aliens coming to Earth, a la the movie Proteus, and guiding human civilization. Among von Daniken's pieces of evidence that aliens visited Earth are the giant drawings of animals and insects on the Nazca Plains of Peru. For those of you who have never heard of these, the Nazca Lines are part of a series of ancient giant geoglyphs located in the Nazca Desert in southern Peru. Scholars believe that the Nazca Lines were created by the Nazca culture between 400 and 650 AD. The hundreds of individual figures range in complexity from very simple lines to hummingbirds, spiders, monkeys, fish, sharks, giant killer whales, and lizards. The lines themselves are shallow designs made in the ground by removing the reddish pebbles and uncovering the whitish, grayish ground underneath. And there are hundreds of these. And the largest figure is over 650 feet across. Von Daniken suggested that airborne extraterrestrials laid out the lines as runways for their aircraft. After all, the geoglyphs are so huge that the drawings can't really be seen very well from the ground, so how could they have been made on the plains 1,500 years ago except by aliens? Well, there are a few problems with von Daniken's far-out idea. First, it's claimed that the soil is not hard enough to sustain repeated landings of heavy aerial craft. Second, why did the alleged extraterrestrials not design something far more sophisticated than what they scratch into the soil seems rather simplistic for an advanced alien culture. And third, a lot of those lines are only like three feet wide, which is way too narrow for aircraft. In addition, Von Donneken never explained the overall meaning and purpose of the animal and insect geoglyphs. Why not just a simple runway after all? 
So if they are not alien landing locations, a la the Stargate movie, what are those drawings? Dr. Clive Ruggles of the University of Leicester suggests that they are something very different. In this month's volume of the journal Antiquity, Ruggles proposes that the lines are actually parts of labyrinths, mazes. In at least one particular figure, Dr. Ruggles has found that the Nazca lines were single paths leading to and from earthen mounds with a series of disorienting twists and turns over about four and a half kilometers. Ruggles states, quote, Those who traversed the desert path encountered 15 sharp corners that ushered them down trails leading away from and back toward a large hill. Walkers then rounded a curve in the path and negotiated two more turns before entering a spiral passageway that dumped them a mere 65 yards from the starting point. It probably took about an hour to complete the journey. Unquote. Ruggles explains in the articles that there is minimal damage to the walking paths he has discerned. He suggests that that probably means that the labyrinth walkers walked with care, and that religious pilgrims who periodically crossed the plateau on the way to nearby Nazca ritual centers steered clear of or were directed away from the labyrinth. Ruggles' hypothesis that the Nazca labyrinths were made to be strolled through while staying mostly hidden from view is novel and a well-argued point in the article, and it certainly makes more sense from a historical viewpoint than the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Next story. For fans of Star Trek the movie, which featured V'ger, or those of you who are just old enough to remember its launch, or fans of the Moody Blues album Long Distance Voyager, this month marks a special time for our long-departed spacecraft, Voyager. Voyager, which is the farthest bit of our civilization, which has been moving away from us for about 35 years, is finally nearing the very edge of our solar system. A NASA press release states that Voyager has just encountered a, quote, magnetic highway of charged particles, unquote, a hint that the spacecraft may not have far to go before reaching the brink of interstellar space. According to NASA, that so-called highway is where the sun's magnetic field and the interstellar magnetic field meet. Particles blown outward from the solar wind are speeding in one direction, while particles from cosmic rays generated outside the solar system are racing in. Voyager 1 and 2 were launched 16 weeks apart in 1977 and are the most distant human-made objects in the known universe. Voyager 1 is now more than 123 times as far from Earth as the planet is from the Sun, and Voyager 2 is about 100 times as far. For the past seven years, the spacecraft has been in an outer region of the solar system called the heliosheath, where the solar wind particles slow down and bounce around in all directions. So what is Voyager going to finally find when it leaves the heliosphere region that defines the edge in the official solar system? Dr. David McComas of NASA states, quote, We think we will find a magnetic field oriented more in a north-south direction. And we've detected radio waves of a few kilohertz, but we could be quite surprised once we get out of the bubble, unquote. I suspect the only thing that would really surprise them would be an alien spacecraft collecting Voyager as a memento of their vacation to the Sol system. Let's stick to astronomy for just a moment. 
Here's a variation on a theme for you guys who are getting sick of the monthly Exoplanet report. I was reminded of the uh, 1970s TV show Space 1999 when I read this particular report. For those of you who missed the show, it was the adventures of a space colony on the moon when the moon was blown out of Earth's orbit accidentally by a gigantic nuclear explosion. Once free of the Earth, Luna became sort of a free agent floating out of the solar system. A bit like Voyager, in fact. In the journal Astrophysics and Astronomy this month, Dr. Philippe Delorme of the Institute of Planetology and Astrophysics of Grenoble, France, reports on a rogue planet that his group has found in a group of stars about 120 light-years from Earth. It's not a planet in the conventional sense because it doesn't orbit a star, but it's between four and seven times the mass of Jupiter, and that's well within planetary size ranges. The object appears to be young and cold, and in a cluster of about 30 stars moving together called A.B. Doradus. Other potential free-floating planets have been detected before, but their ages have not been calculable like this one. Astronomers couldn't be sure the objects were planets and not brown dwarfs previously. A brown dwarf is a failed star too small to sustain a fusion reaction. The newfound object, which has been dubbed in a most poetic manner, CFBDSIR2149, lies in the southern constellation Dorado. Scientists estimate that the planet is between 20 million and 200 million years old, based on the age of the stars that accompany it. Delorme says, quote, it's like a one-year-old baby versus a 45-year-old man. To me, this planet is a prototype of exoplanets we are looking for around other stars, unquote. Free-floating planets were first discovered about 10 years ago in the constellation Orion. A couple of dozen have been found since, but scientists don't know how common these planetary drifters are. How these floaters form also remains a mystery. They might have been planets that were kicked out of orbit around their star, or they could have been formed more like brown dwarves just from collapsing clouds of gas and dust, although it's pretty unlikely they were released through nuclear explosions, I suspect. Up next, are your guts as good as your fingerprints? I expect a few huhs from that question. I can understand that. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Let me explain. In the newest issue of the journal Nature, Dr. George Weinstock of Washington University reports on the bacteria in your gut and how unique it is compared to other people. In the first ever study to catalog genetic variation of microbes in the human gut, Weinstein and his group identified a remarkable amount of variation in the genomes of gut microbes, more than in the human genome, in fact. Also, they showed for the first time that those differences vary from person to person and actually remain stable over time. Weinstock states, quote, Each of us has a personalized gut microbial fingerprint, and knowledge about that unique profile could improve human health and medicine, unquote. In the paper, they analyzed the DNA sequences of 252 stool samples obtained from the NIH Microbiome Project. Then they compared those sequences with reference genomes from 101 microbes, including E. coli, Streptococcus, and Clostridium. It turns out that microbes in an individual's gut have, on average, one genetic variant or single nucleotide polymorphism per 150 nucleotides. A single nucleotide polymorphism is literally a single nucleotide change 
between individuals or organisms or populations. The human genome has about one variant for every 1,000 nucleotides, so one per every 150 is quite a bit of variation. Weinstock states about this variation, quote, There seems to be more variation in bacteria than in humans, which makes sense. They divide faster than we do and are more versatile when responding to selective pressures in their environment, unquote. Most of that genetic variation was found in genes that require versatility, such as antibiotic resistance genes. Areas of least variation occurred in genes coding for proteins that interact with the host and are necessary to survive in a hostile gut environment. A subset of the samples in the study included 43 individuals who were sampled multiple times. From these samples, the team concluded that an individual's collection of microbial strains is maintained over time, though the abundance of individual microbes may increase or decrease. Again, here's Weinstein's comment, quote, your unique individualized microbiome is stable and distinguishable from other people. It's just like your human genome. Slight differences in yours and mine distinguish us from each other, unquote. Weinstein says the goal of the study is to aid in medical diagnoses and to find out how our collection of gut bugs can someday be manipulated to improve effectiveness of certain medications. However, I wonder if he's thinking something else entirely, an entirely new form of human biometrics, perhaps. As his study pointed out, each gut's bacteria is unique and stable. So, well, Dr. Weinstein, are you suggesting that we use feces as the new fingerprint? I'm just wondering. You can get back to me on that. I'm just not so sure how popular it will be at police stations and banks. That's all. All right. I'm sorry. I've been spending way too much time with my four and six-year-olds. In case you don't believe I can gross you out even more, the next story is from the Journal of Experimental Biology this month and is all about soft-shell turtles. Innocent enough so far, huh? Dr. Ip Yung Kwan and colleagues from the National University of Singapore have discovered that soft-shell turtles have an unusual way of getting rid of their liquid nitrogenous waste. Read that as urine. Quan found that Chinese soft-shelled turtles pass waste through their mouths. Biologists have been puzzled for years by the turtle's behavior because despite its having lungs to breathe air, it often submerges its head underwater for quite a long time. By testing the water, Quan's group found that the reptile was excreting urea through its mouth instead of its kidneys. The discovery adds to previous research, which suggested that turtles have highly specialized mouth tissues. So yes, these turtles are urinating through their mouths. Quan and other scientists noted that these species occasionally submerge their heads into pools of water for up to 100 minutes at a time. Quan originally brought a turtle into the lab to study why they didn't drown and to observe what else may be happening. He provided it with water and observed as it regularly dipped its head and rinsed water through its mouth. Quan said, quote, The urea excretion rate through the mouth was significantly greater, 15 to 49-fold, than it was through the cloaca, unquote. A cloaca is the single orifice used for waste matter and reproduction in lots of reptiles and birds. Quan further stated, quote, the ability to pass waste through the mouth was unique to this species. We were greatly surprised by our novel results because it is generally accepted that the kidney is responsible for excretion of urea in vertebrates, except fish, unquote. 
Juan does not clarify where he thinks the urea is coming from, but he does suggest that some animals, such as cattle, recycle nitrogen waste in their saliva. Ew. Okay, let's finish the science podcast on a slightly cleaner note. This story is from the journal The Scientist. Dr. Taras Olasik, a young researcher at the University of Puerto Rico, has decided to sequence the DNA genome of the native parrot of Puerto Rico, and he certainly has the support of the island. The Puerto Rican parrot, the only parrot species native to the island, once flirted with extinction and is still critically endangered. By the early 1970s, the population had dwindled to about 16 birds. By 2011, an estimated 100 parrots were born in the wild or released from Puerto Rico's captive breeding program. While the success of the reintroduction program was certainly cause for rejoicing, the fact that the population bottomed out so dramatically just 40 years ago means that today's birds are likely quite inbred with low genetic diversity. Sequencing the parrot's genome could not only serve as a tool for studying the current genetic variation of the Puerto Rican parrot, but could also help identify genetic changes that accompany the diversification of ancestral parrot species. Dr. Olasik seems to be on a one-man crusade. Olasik reached out to the Genome 10K project, which is aimed at sequencing the genomes of 10,000 vertebrate species to improve conservation efforts worldwide for money. The request was not turned down, but the group had already chosen 17 bird species to sequence that year and wouldn't be able to take on the Puerto Rican parrot until 2013 at the earliest. Dr. Olasik apparently has less patience than even I do because he didn't want to wait. But the problem was he didn't have the thousands of dollars needed to actually perform the project. That was when he saw some paintings of the island parrot, which had been done by his graduate student's sister to help raise awareness about the project. He decided one way to raise money would be to sell the paintings to help the sequencing cause. They were able to do the initial sequencing for just $2,000 raised from the art. And then, to do the sequencing in more depth, they raised another $2,000 from a second art show. After that, they brought in an additional $2,000 from a fashion show, as well as contributed cash and donated products from local businesses and individuals. In all, so far, the team has raised a total of about $8,000, which funded additional sequencing runs that increased the coverage and improved the assembly of the DNA fragments. In addition to inspiring the Puerto Rican community, the project has also motivated the university. In October, the University of Puerto Rico launched a new genome center, which proudly bears the parrot as its logo. And it now offers a parrot DNA annotation class in which students are given a portion of a parrot chromosome to search for genes and regulatory elements. Olasek has apparently hit the big time now with two recent $20,000 contributions from the Toyota Foundation and the Fish and Wildlife Management Office of Puerto Rico, which oversees the captive parrot breeding program. The research group now has enough money to look at a greater number of samples and to begin assessing individual genetic variation. Olasek says, quote, the problem with that population is it's extremely inbred. There might still be parts of the genome that harbor diversity you might want to preserve, unquote. What do I have to say about this parrot business? Feliz Navidad and Prospero Año. And that's about it. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care, 
Ignore the advice of any Mayans you may come across, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. Jim, I've got some things planned for you in 2013, that's for sure. (laughs) Next up is a little fact article by the assistant editor over at Starship Sofa, but he also does the Cheapskates Review, Adam Pjord. Adam, sir. Merry Christmas from Chiron Beta Prime, where we're working in a mine for our robot overlords. Did I say overlords? I meant protectors. Greetings to my fellow coach class passengers aboard the Starship Sleigh. I mean Sofa. My name is Adam, welcoming you to the Christmas edition of Cheapskates and bringing you reviews of free science fiction ebooks and audiobooks. Yes, we're changing up the theme music this week to make room for my favorite Christmas song about despotic alien robots enslaving all humanity. <clears throat> well, cheapskates, there's just insert number of days here. Shopping days left until Christmas, and maybe like me, the funds aren't going quite as far as you'd like for all the gifts you'd like to give. So, I'm going to start off departing from my usual hints and review a few sites where you can earn a little extra Christmas scratch for the bibliophile in your life. First is a site called Mechanical Turk at www.mturk.com. I could look up what a Mechanical Turk actually is, but I prefer my initial image of a steampunk robot wearing a fez. Don't correct me. I don't want to know. Essentially, this Amazon-connected company pays you for doing annoying, small, or repetitive online tasks that aren't worth the time for most people. And for the most part, yeah, a few pennies for the amount of tasks you have to do just isn't worth it. But if you want some advice, working on the site just barely becomes worth it if you try the research surveys frequently posted to the site. After you do them for a while, you'll start to recognize the legitimate ones. In the first place, the ones from a true college or university or other research institution, are never more than $10, and you're usually flying high if you find one for $5. Mostly, though, the surveys worth doing range between a quarter and a dollar. Don't ignore the cheaper ones. You can usually hammer those out a lot faster than the time commitment expected from researchers paying a whole dollar. Also, never click blind. Any task that tries to link using a site masker like Bitly or the like is bad news bears. A few of these are consumer or political surveys, but mostly you'll be doing psychological surveys if you try this out. I'm sure I've distorted more than my fair of graduate psychology students' view of the mental landscape of the world by taking these surveys over the years. You can also do okay with voice transcription, but these are more hit and miss. They often expect much for little reward, and more often than not, the recordings are nearly indecipherable. To get a sense of how much you can make on MTurk, well, I've made just shy of $500 in the three years I've done tasks, and that's with doing a few here and there over lunch hours. 
just slightly over 1,800 jobs, some big and some small. You can get the funds as a straight deposit to your bank account once you reach at least $10, or you can pull off an Amazon gift card with just a dollar. It's really an easy way to buy some cheap Kindle books for the modern reader. If you're looking for something a little more passive, you can give Swagbucks a try. Again, if you're not careful, you can end up signing on to expensive offers that aren't worth the rewards. But if you're patient, you can accrue points, I'm sorry, swag bucks, through some fairly benign methods, like doing searches, printing off and using coupons, viewing a few ads without obligation, or playing some videos, which are easy to mute and ignore, or answering a poll that takes just a couple seconds. You can snag $5 Amazon gift cards for just $450, $5 Barnes & Noble cards for $500, and a surprising variety of e-books and even e-readers, if you can be patient enough to let the bucks accrue up to the five-digit range. There's also the option to donate your bucks to charity, which I think is an admirable usage. It's even a good gift to give to the person who has everything by helping out people who have nothing. There's also a wide variety of other stuff if you don't care for books or helping others, but we both know that's not the case, right? My final suggestion is to try out Bing Rewards. This one is probably the safest of these options, as the main way to earn rewards points is just to search using Bing. You can also get a few points by clicking on their sponsored links, but it processes pretty quickly, and you can usually just click and close. You can get Amazon gift cards, free Redbox, DVD, or video game rentals, or, again, make a charitable donation. By the way, I think it's hilarious that Bing finds it necessary to shell out free stuff to get people to use their search engine. But if they're giving it away, I'm willing to take it. Most of my searches are straightforward, and it's not like Google's going away anytime soon. My apologies for the Amazon-esque leanings of these suggestions. It's not necessarily my preference, but for whatever reason, Amazon seems pretty willing to associate itself with this kind of, quote, easy money. I should probably also give the disclaimer, I'm in no way being compensated for these suggestions by anyone. These are on the up and up, and all based on my personal experience. Also, this disclaimer... If you mess up and get your identity stolen, don't come crying to me. Hope these ideas help out with the holiday bills. Just be careful, okay? All right, on to the good stuff. I thought with Christmas just around the corner, I'd review a free science fiction ebook with a Christmas theme. It was a little tricky to think of or to find a good one, though. And then I realized the perfect sci-fi book was staring me right in the face. I'm referring, of course, to that science fiction classic, A Christmas Carol, by Charles Dickens. Holy genre misclassification, Batman! I can hear you all saying, but just bear with me. I'm going to trust I don't need to give a plot summary. As infused as this book is into Western culture in general and our holiday season in specific. But, just in case, here's A Christmas Carol in 16 words. 
Scrooge is a bad, rich miser. Four ghosts change him. Now he's a good, rich man. The end. What I want to focus on instead is making my argument for A Christmas Carol as a forerunner of modern science fiction and paranormal fiction. First, there's the obvious paranormal activity, with the visitation from the ghost of Jacob Marley and the spirits of Christmas past, present, and future. This might be easy to dismiss today, but I think it's primarily a result of the more cutesy-poo versions of the classic tale. These are particularly egregious when it comes to Marley's ghost, the ghost of Christmas past, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. For example, the Mickey Mouse version put Goofy in the role of Marley and Jiminy Cricket as the ghost of Christmas past. The Muppet version had two Marleys to accommodate Statler and Waldorf doing their pun-laden knee slappers. And a Sesame Street Christmas Carol had the voice of Christmas yet to come, played by a cute little robot called I-Sam, which was channeling the voice of Elmo. Elmo. Oddly, the 2009 computer animated Disney version, with Jim Carrey voicing Scrooge and the Three Ghosts, seems to come closer to the mark than most other films of recent days. All of these trivial versions of A Christmas Carol, I think, has really distracted from some really creepy and brilliant description by Dickens in the original tale that's nearly on a par with H.P. Lovecraft. Take this description of the ghost of Christmas past, for example. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man, viewed through some supernatural medium which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arms were very long and muscular, the hands the same, as if its hold were of uncommon strength. Its legs and feet most delicately formed, were, like those upper members, bare. It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It held a branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and in singular contradiction of that wintry album, had its dress trimmed with summer flowers. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright, clear jet of light, by which all this was visible, and which was doubtless the occasion of its using, in its duller moments, a great extinguisher for a cap, which it now held under its arm. Even this, though, when Scrooge looked at it with increasing steadiness, was not its strangest quality. For as its belt sparkled and glittered, now in one part and now in another, and what was light one instant at another time was dark, so the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness, being now a thing with one arm, now with one leg, now with twenty legs, now a pair of legs without a head, now a head without a body, of which dissolving parts no outline would be visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away. And in the very wonder of this, it would be itself again, distinct and clear as ever. Then there's this bit with Marley. 
At this, the spirit raised a frightful cry and shook its chain with such a dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling in a swoon. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom taking off the bandage round its head as if it were too warm to wear indoors, its lower jaw dropped down upon its breast. And finally, this moment, just after Scrooge meets Marley's ghost, which is almost universally dropped from movie adaptations. It beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped, not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear, for on the raising of the hand he became sensible of confused noises in the air, incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressibly sorrowful and self-accusatory. The specter, after listening for a moment, joined in the mournful dirge and floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window, desperate in his curiosity. He looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in a restless haste and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle, who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant, whom it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was, clearly, that they sought to interfere for good in human matters, and had lost the power forever. Apart from this, there's just a lot of examples where Dickens makes some really unsettling use of metaphor, like when he talks about the air laughing, or describes Scrooge's now grumpy house as having gallivanted around in its younger days. But let's proceed with my points. Apart from the paranormal and the elements of horror, we also have early examples of time travel by Scrooge traveling with the ghost to the past and future. I'd also argue that there are examples of lost or compressed time. See, the spirits have done it all in one night. And, I would contend, even a moment of alternate timelines when Scrooge asks, Are these the shadows of things that will be, or are they shadows of things that may be only? There's even a moment of possible telepathy when the ghost of Christmas past appears to read Scrooge's thoughts. But even if you don't buy it as science fiction, that's okay. I wouldn't truly classify it that way either. You can't deny that the work has been embraced by those working in science fiction and fantasy. Take, for example, these books found with just a quick search on Amazon. A Zombie Christmas Carol. I Am Scrooge, A Zombie Story for Christmas. A Christmas Carol of the Living Dead. A Vampire Christmas Carol. A Vampire's Christmas Carol. Scrooge, the Vampire. A Christmas Carol and Steampunk Cyborgs. And Carol for Another Christmas. Which apparently brings Scrooge into the digital age, this time as the moralizer. All of these cost, so they're not cheapskate-worthy, but for the record, I wouldn't pay for these anyway. Prefer comic books? 
Well, there's an issue of the Batman Noel series that takes A Christmas Carol as its theme. Not a DC fan? Fine. Check out the brand spanking new Zombies Christmas Carol in the Marvel Zombies series released October 31 of 2012, which apparently has Tiny Tim eating Bob Cratchit. Ew. Not sure I can explain the apparently obsessive need to put zombies into Dickens, but apparently someone's buying. If you're wanting some quality variations, I'd recommend Tim Pratt's excellent The Ghost of Christmas Possible, which you can hear for free over in the Podcastle archives. Also, there was apparently an episode of Doctor Who in 2010 that used the Christmas Carol framework, which I have not been able to lay my hands on. The clips and reviews bode well, so it's probably worth your time if you can find it. And if you happen to be in Chicago around the holidays, you have got to check out A Klingon Christmas Carol by Comedia Beauregard, my apologies in advance for the pronunciation, at the Raven Theater. I know this sounds absurd, but those who have seen it say it apparently makes a transition well into Klingon. And it's been popular enough to actually become something of a modern tradition for several years now. In this version, rather than lacking compassion, Scrooge lacks honor and courage. This version is performed completely in Klingon with English supertitles and includes narrative analysis from the Vulcan Institute of Cultural Anthropology. If you get a chance, I say go give it a chance. Whether you buy the Dickens classic as proto-sci-fi or not, you really do need to give it a read. It's short and pleasantly clever and funny. I hadn't realized that. You can hear it right from the beginning with the dead as a doornail section. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know, of my own knowledge, what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadliest piece of ironmongery in the trade, but the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. Other examples are Scrooge worrying that his contracts could be worthless as a U.S. security. That never goes away, does it? And accusing Marley of being more of gravy than the grave, meaning that he's a result of bad indigestion. If I have any criticism of the book, and it's hard to find anything here to nitpick, it's that Scrooge seems a little too willing to go along with the ghosts and change his ways. He set up as too entrenched for such a turnaround. The reaction in the aforementioned story by Tim Pratt seems more accurate. In that version, he hired a paranormal investigator. I'll link to free versions of A Christmas Carol Online, including versions that reproduce the first edition illustrations. Very cool. That's on my website, cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com. I'll also include links to free audiobook versions of the story, among them a dramatized version on LibriVox of surprising quality. Of course, I'll give you links to as many of those crazy derivative works as I can fit in. Well, that's all today for Cheapskates. The music this month is 
from Chiron Beta Prime by the great Jonathan Colton under a Creative Commons attribution on commercial license. You can find Jonathan's work at www.jonathancolton.com. This is Adam reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. This year has been a little crazy for the Andersons. You may recall we had some trouble last year. The robot council had us banished to an asteroid that hasn't undermined our holiday cheer. And we know it's almost Christmas by the marks we make on the wall. That's our favorite time of year. Merry Christmas from Chiron Beta Prime, where we're working in a mine for our robot overlords. Did I say overlords? I meant protectors. Merry Christmas from Chiron Beta Prime. On every corner there's a giant metal Santa Claus Who watches over us with glowing red eyes They carry weapons and they know if you've been bad or good Not everybody's good but everyone tries And the rocks outside the airlock Exude ammonia-scented snow It's like a winter wonderland Merry Christmas from Chiron Beta Prime where we're working in a mine for our robot overlords. Did I say overlords? I meant protectors. Merry Christmas, Chiron Beta Prime. Now it's time for Christmas dinner I think the robot sent us a pie You know I love my soil and green Merry Christmas from Chiron Beta Prime Where we're working in a mine For our robot overlords Did I say overlords? I meant protectors Merry Christmas from Chiron Beta Prime Adam, it's lovely to have you on board Starship Rover. Thank you so much. Next up is then the final part of the boneless one. This is the story by Alec Naval Ali. We played part one last week and this is part two. And it's narrated by our very own, obviously very own Josh Roseman. Josh, who's done a number of narrations for Starship Rover and very nice ones they are as well. So, Josh, over to you and Alec. Previously on Starship Sofa. The Boneless One by Alec Neville Lee. Trip is a journalist on an oceanic expedition organized by science entrepreneur Ray Wiley. Ray's goal is ostensibly to map the genome of ocean-born microorganisms, but his real mission is to find something he can sell. The expedition comes across a school of luminescent octopi, and they stop to investigate. That night, Trip is invited to Ray's cabin to interview him one-on-one, but when he gets there, he finds Ray dead, his throat cut. 
The next day, the captain finds the engine sabotaged, and, taking advantage of their immobility, the scientists continue studying the octopi. They capture two more and put them in nearby tanks. At dinner time, they find that one octopus has escaped from its tank, invaded the other tank, and eaten the other octopus while it was still alive. And now, the conclusion. Three. I don't believe it, Tripp said again. Looking away from the carnage on screen, he saw sickened expressions on the faces around him. As if following a common impulse, the crew turned from the television to look at the tanks and experienced a collective shudder. The remaining octopus had abandoned its meal and was pressing its head against the wall of its tank, watching them, or so it seemed, with its gelatinous eyes. The nodules on its arms were glowing brightly. Lowering his gaze, Tripp saw something that should have been obvious before. Streaks of moisture were visible on the countertop between the two tanks, marks from where the octopus had dragged itself across the intervening space. Something in the nearly invisible trail, which was rapidly drying out, made what they had just witnessed seem even more hideous. Ellis was the first to regain some semblance of composure. I should have been more careful. Octopuses are notorious for squeezing through tight spaces. The hardest part of the body is the beak, and the rest is highly compressible. If a gap is wide enough for the beak to pass through... Kieran stared at him. You're saying that this isn't strange? I'm sorry, but I'm a little freaked out by this. I'm not saying that this wasn't unusual, Ellis said. I'm only saying that it can be explained. As for the cannibalism, I have no professional opinion. The important thing is that we fix the tanks. Using a hooked rod, which he held at arm's length, Kieran transferred the surviving octopus to its old tank. The octopus seemed sated, its eyes filmy and glazed, as it slid, twitching slightly into the water. Kieran fastened a rectangle of wire mesh across the top of the bucket, so that the gap between lid and rim was sealed off, then did the same to the octopus in the wet lab next door. There seemed to be no way that either octopus could escape again. Even after those precautions had been taken, an aura of uneasiness lingered over the yacht. An hour later, when Tripp went to bed, it was a long time before he fell asleep. And when he did, he was troubled by nightmares. In one dream, he was seated at the desk in his cabin, the door closed. As he reviewed his notes, oblivious to the danger, an octopus squeezed beneath the door, slithered across the carpet, climbed his chair, and touched the back of his neck with one clammy arm. Before he could react, the octopus pressed its parrot-like beak against his throat, and then Trip awoke, the sheets twisted like tentacles around his legs. It was still dark outside. As he tried to remember what had awakened him, he looked at his hands, which were visible in the faint light from the octopus school, and was shocked by the sight. His fingernails and cuticles were ragged, and a sour taste in his mouth told him that he had been chewing his nails in his sleep. He was studying the damage that he had done, noticing that his fingers were bleeding in a few places, when he remembered what had pulled him from sleep in the first place. It had been a scream. As he sat up in bed, he found that he could hear voices coming from the stateroom across the hall. Tripp pulled on his shoes and went quietly across the corridor, taking care not to disturb Ellis and Gary, who were asleep. Through the door of the adjoining cabin, 
he heard voices. He knocked. Is everything okay? The voices ceased at once. After a moment, he heard the shuffle of footsteps, and the door opened a crack. It's all right, Meg said softly, peering through the gap. Go back to bed. It isn't all right, Dawn said, appearing behind Meg. Tell her this needs to stop. What needs to stop? Tripp asked. As he spoke, he saw a line of blood trickling down the crook of Meg's arm. Impulsively, he came forward, pushing the door open. The two women fell back. What happened? It's nothing. Meg's voice was nearly a mumble. It isn't any of your business. Don't give me that, Dawn said, seizing Meg's wrist in one hand. Look at this. Tripp saw a series of gashes running along Meg's inside elbow. The cuts were parallel and shallow, and while none had grazed a major vessel, they were bleeding freely. Did someone attack you? Nobody attacked her, Dawn said, her voice on edge. She did this to herself. Tripp turned to Meg, whose face was closed off with embarrassment. Is that true? Meg yanked her arm away from Dawn, sending droplets of blood to the floor. It's no big deal. Sometimes I cut myself when I'm stressed. I've done it since I was a teenager. It's never deep enough to be dangerous. I don't see why you're making a federal case out of this. Tripp noticed a knife on the bedside table, its blade smeared with blood. Did you take this from the kitchen? Meg sighed. I was going to replace it. I never meant to use it on anyone but myself. I don't care about the knife, Dawn said. We've been friends a long time. I can't believe you've been hiding this from me. The women resumed their argument. Tripp was about to slip away when he remembered the medical kit that Ellis had used to bag Ray's hands. Hold on, Tripp said. We need to do something about those cuts. He went back to his cabin, where the others were still asleep, and found the medical kit among Ellis's things. When he returned to the other stateroom, Dawn seemed calmer, and Meg was cupping a hand casually beneath her elbow, catching the blood in the hollow of her palm. Opening the medical kit, Tripp took out a roll of tape and a gauze pad. He was about to close the kit again when he saw something tucked beneath the dressings. He reached inside. Fishing the object out, he found that it was a pack of ball bearings, the package cool and heavy in his hand. From the spare parts kit, Tripp said. He looked at the others. Do you think... He broke off. The women were looking at the door, their expressions wary. Tripp saw that a shadow had fallen across the floor. Rising to his feet, he found himself facing a solitary figure in the doorway. That's my medical kit, Ellis said, his voice calm. What are you doing with it? A minor emergency, but everything should be fine. Tripp held up the package of ball bearings. What the hell are these? Ellis regarded the package. I stole them from the spare parts kit. I was fairly sure that what I had done to the engine would keep us here another day, but I wanted to be on the safe side. You sabotaged the engine, Tripp said. He had already forgotten about Meg. Why? Ellis gave him a look of contempt. You know why. I wanted to keep the yacht here a day or two longer. There was no way to make Ray listen to reason, so I took things into my own hands. By attacking my ship? It was Stavros. He was standing in the doorway, drawn by the noise, with Gary watching from over one shoulder. We could have been stranded here for weeks. You don't understand, Ellis said. Going to the window, he thrust his finger toward the octopus lights. 
Ray was rushing ahead to meet a meaningless deadline. I wanted to document a natural phenomenon that might never be seen again. I don't have to defend the choice I made. Gary pushed past the captain. Are you listening to yourself? You're worse than Ray. You only cared about your own career, even if it threatened everything we were doing here. Did you kill Ray, too? I didn't kill Ray, Ellis said fiercely. I can't believe you're accusing me of this. Without warning, Ellis punched the wall of the stateroom hard so that the bulkhead rang with the blow. As the others fell back, he punched it again. Before anyone else could speak, Kieran appeared, breathless, at the stateroom door. I don't know what the commotion is all about, but you need to break it up, Kieran said. There's something you all need to see. They went into the salon, where the lights had been turned up. Kieran pointed toward the tank that housed the octopus. Look! Staring at what was there, Trip felt his anger dissolve into a sickening sense of horror. When they had caught this octopus the day before, they had made sure that all of its arms were intact. Now two of its arms were missing, leaving only a pair of stumps behind. The water was full of blood, but the severed arms were gone. Trip had no desire to find out what had become of them, but it was already too late. The octopus was eating itself. As Trip watched, the octopus bent one of its remaining arms until the base was pressed against its gaping mouth. With a snip of its beak, it severed the arm which fell away in a cloud of blood. Without a pause, the octopus swam after it, positioning itself so that one end of the amputated arm was in its mouth and began to devour it like a length of spaghetti. Trip found himself remembering the line from Hesiod that Stavros had quoted. The boneless one gnaws his foot in his fireless house and wretched home. Ellis and Gary were looking at each other, their heated exchange apparently forgotten. Autophagy, Ellis said. Gary nodded, although he was visibly repulsed by the sight. I should have known. Let me check the other specimen. Hold on a second, Tripp said to Ellis. You're saying you've seen this before. Not exactly, but I've heard of it. Ellis said. Octopuses are occasionally known to cannibalize themselves. It's called autophagy. No one knows what causes it, but it seems to involve a viral infection of the nervous system. It's a disease. When you have several octopuses in a single tank, if one starts to eat itself, the others will follow. Death ensues within days. Gary returned to the salon. The third octopus looks fine. It was never in contact with this specimen, so maybe? Ellis shook his head. If we're dealing with infectious autophagy, it may have spread to the entire school. For all we know, this is what brought them to the surface. The lights are coordinating their behavior. It's a mass suicide. Although his voice remained calm, Ellis was clearly upset. He thrust his bleeding knuckles into his mouth. Trip looked at him then looked back at the maddened octopus, which had finished eating its own arm. Finally, he looked at his own hands and felt the last piece fall into place. We need to discuss something. Right now, Tripp said to the others. Where's Meg? Meg was brought from the stateroom, a fresh bandage on her elbow. The crew sat around the table in the salon, looking at Tripp. Through the windows, the lights seemed to press against the yacht on all sides. Trip laid his hands on the table, showing them to the others. You see this? I've been biting my nails for the past couple of days. It's something I haven't done in years, 
but ever since we entered this part of the ocean, I've been gnawing them like a maniac. Why? I'm not sure, but I can guess. Before anyone else could speak, Trip turned to Ellis. A moment ago, you punched the wall so hard that your knuckles started to bleed. Is this something that you normally do? If Ellis saw where this was going, he was not inclined to play along. I was upset. I don't think it means anything. But it wasn't the first time you'd done it. I saw the bruises on your hands. This is part of a larger pattern of behavior, and it's been happening to all of us. Trip turned to Meg. Meg, you felt the urge to cut yourself. Stavros, I saw you bite your lip until it drew blood. Gary was looking at him with open skepticism. What exactly are you trying to say? We're being affected by something in the environment, Trip said. This octopus is eating itself for the same reason. Meg, you were a medical student. Have you ever seen a disease that could cause behavior like this? Not firsthand, Meg said slowly, but infections of the nervous system can result in psychotic or suicidal behavior. Genetic disorders can also lead to violence. Children bite off their lips and fingers or attack those around them as a form of displacement. In the end, they need to be physically restrained. A form of displacement, Tripp said, underlining the phrase. What does that mean? They feel driven to destroy their own bodies, so they redirect their aggression toward others. The violence is often concentrated on their family and friends, which may be another way of hurting themselves. What about murder? Tripp asked. Could this displacement go far enough that the person was forced to kill? It's possible, Meg said. In theory, it could lead to murder by someone who is not in control of his actions. Like the octopus, Tripp said. It climbed out of its tank to kill its neighbor, but as soon as it ran out of victims, it turned on itself. And if this disease is affecting the entire school, we're right in the middle of it. It's like Ray said, every drop of seawater contains millions of viruses. If this is a disease, it must be transmitted in the sea. And where do we get our drinking water? The water maker, Stavros said. It purifies seawater, but won't screen out viruses. We have an emergency cache of water in our drums, Kieran said. It's designed to sustain the crew for two weeks. We might even be able to modify our sampling system to purify water for drinking. But if we're already infected, fixing the water supply won't be enough, Tripp said. He turned to Ellis. The octopus in the wet lab hasn't displayed any symptoms. Can you think of any reason why? Ellis thought for a moment. This afternoon, I wanted to examine it more closely, so I anesthetized it with magnesium chloride. It's a standard anesthetic for cephalopods. In humans, it's a nervous system depressant that blocks neuromuscular transmissions. And if you're right, and this impulse to hurt ourselves is a sort of seizure, something like magnesium, may inhibit the reaction. It's possible, Meg said excitedly, and we have a lot of magnesium salts on board. Maybe we can use it as a temporary treatment. Gary seemed unconvinced. I still don't buy it. Even if you're right about the virus, it's hard to believe that it could affect humans and octopuses in the same way. Besides, we've all been drinking the same water, and I'm fine. And you haven't mentioned Kieran or Dawn at all. That's because he never asked, Dawn said quietly. As the rest of the crew watched, she removed her cap and shook loose her hair. Tilting her head to one side, she pointed to an area of her scalp not far from the crown. A patch of hair, 
less than half an inch in diameter, was missing. I chew my hair and swallow it, Dawn said, sounding embarrassed. Trichophagia, a bad habit. I haven't done it since I was a girl, but last night it started up again, just before we found Ray. Trip turned to Kieran. He found that his heart was pounding. What about you? Without speaking, Kieran yanked up the sleeve of his shirt, revealing his forearm. The marks of several recent burns were visible against his dark skin. In a few places, they had begun to blister. I've been burning myself with my lighter, Kieran said flatly. I didn't know why. The crew looked at the burns for a long moment. Then, as if the same thought had occurred to everyone at once, their eyes turned to Gary. I don't know what to tell you, Gary said. I haven't felt at all out of the ordinary. Tripp was about to reply when he noticed something strange. Although the salon was comfortably warm, Gary was wearing a pair of gloves. When he thought back to it now, Tripp couldn't remember the last time he had seen Gary without them. In Ray's stateroom, Gary had been wearing his lab gloves and smock. He had spent most of the following day in the water wearing scuba gloves and had suggested that they eat dinner on deck, forcing all of them to bundle up. Tripp cleared his throat. Gary, would you mind taking off your gloves? Gary only glared at him. I can't believe you're saying this. This is totally crazy. It doesn't seem so unreasonable to me, Kieran said. Why don't you want to take them off? Gary opened his mouth, as if to respond. Then, in a movement that caught all of them off guard, he was up and on his feet. Before he could get far, Kieran tackled him, pinning his arms behind his back. There was a brief struggle, punctuated by curses on both sides, before Gary finally surrendered. Let's have a look, Ellis said. Going forward, he took hold of Gary's left arm. Tripp seized the cuff of the glove, yanking it off, then paused. Gary's fingers were unblemished and clean. I hope you're satisfied, Gary said. Do we need to go through this a second time? Tripp glanced at the others. Ellis and Kieran had lost some of their certainty, but they shifted their grip on Gary, thrusting his right arm forward. Tripp seized his wrist, took hold of the remaining glove, and gave it a good tug. As soon as the glove was off, it fell, forgotten to the floor. Gary closed his eyes. His fingertips were missing. All of the nails were gone, torn or gnawed away, and the first joint of his index finger had been bitten off completely. The wounds cauterized to stop the bleeding. At the sight of the ravaged hand, Ellis released Gary's arm, his face gray. Looking at those burnt stumps, Tripp remembered the blowtorch that Gary had used to sterilize his shears and realized what should have been obvious long ago. Gary had spent the previous day in the lab, working with samples that had been taken from the water, cutting up the filters, processing them with enzymes. Whatever was in the ocean would have been concentrated by the filtration process. And, if there was a pathogen in the water, Gary had received by far the greatest dose. I'm sorry, Gary said, addressing no one in particular. I really can't help myself. His ruined hand went for his pocket. There was a flash of silver, and an instant later, blood was streaming from Ellis's throat. Gary pulled out the shears, their blades streaked with crimson, and let them drop. As Ellis fell to his knees, Gary broke loose and dashed for the companionway. 
Trip ran after him, the other men following close behind, as Meg screamed for Don to bring the medical kit. As he left the salon, Trip had just enough time to notice that the octopus was lying dead at the bottom of its tank. Outside, a stinging rain had begun to fall. Around the boat, the lights from the octopus school were shining even more brightly than before. In their cold luminescence, Trip saw someone moving at the stern of the yacht. He turned to see Gary standing in the dive cockpit, a harpoon gun clutched in his good hand. Don't come any closer, Gary said, his voice breaking. If you do, I'll put a harpoon through your heart. I like you, but that doesn't mean I won't do it. It may even make it easier. I know, Trip said, the rain trickling down his face. I won't take it personally. Speak for yourself, Kieran said. He was standing next to Trip, ready to spring but for the moment he held back. Stavros took up a position nearby. They stood in silence, watching and waiting in the rain. I never wanted this to happen, Gary said at last. I killed Ray, but I had no choice. I believe you, Tripp said, knowing that the longer they kept Gary talking, the better their chances of taking him by surprise. If you hurt him, it was because you didn't want to hurt yourself. Gary shook his head. I was angry with him, too. He was holding back our most crucial findings. Did you know this? I realized it when I saw the first paper he published. I'd been in the lab since day one and knew exactly what we'd found. Ray was selfish, like Ellis. Like me. The hand with the harpoon gun fell slightly. Tripp felt Kieran tense up at his side, but Gary, sensing this as well, raised the gun again. You weren't selfish, Tripp said. You wanted to do what was right. Did I? Gary asked. The other day when I heard Ray talking about how he was going to make his research freely available, I couldn't take it anymore. As I worked in the lab, I got madder and madder. I didn't know where the anger was coming from. I thought about killing myself, cutting my own throat, just so I wouldn't be a party to this web of lies. It wasn't about you, Tripp said. It was in the water. It had nothing to do with Ray. But the betrayal was real. After dinner, I tried to work, but I couldn't concentrate. I saw myself doing horrible things, like tearing off my fingers, so I came up here to be alone. I was thinking about throwing myself overboard, just to stop the noise in my head, when Ray appeared. His eyes grew clouded. Ray was here to look at the lights, but when he saw me, we started to talk. I wanted to speak to him privately, so we went down the hatchway to his cabin. I confronted him about the missing results. He denied it at first then threatened to take me off the project if I refused to go along. I wanted to kill myself, and then I wanted to kill him, too. Without lowering the harpoon gun, Gary picked up a dive belt and looped it over his body. He did the same with the second belt, one across each shoulder, so that they crossed his chest like a pair of bandoliers. I didn't even know I had the shears in my pocket. All I could think of were the lights in the sea. When he was dead, I went to the dive cockpit to wash up, then headed back to the lab. Nobody saw me, but while I was waiting for you to find the body, I chewed off the ends of my fingers. Gary's face was obscured by the rain. So I was the most selfish of all. I killed Ray so that I wouldn't hurt myself. Now I've done the same to Ellis. He swallowed hard. It's time to do something selfless for a change. He tossed the harpoon gun aside. Before anyone else could move, Gary climbed over the railing of the yacht, the dive belts looped across both his shoulders, and leapt into the ocean.
Trip and the others ran to the railing. Gary was already gone, the weight of the dive belts dragging him below the surface, the sea closing rapidly over his head. Trip stared at the water for a long time, his eyes smarting from the rain, but Gary did not appear again. All around the ship, the ghostly lights continued to fluoresce, the octopus school glowing as it had done for millions of years, casting its cold radiance across the unmarked shroud of the sea. On a trellised arcade at Hulbertson Hospital, a yellow wall gave back the sun's rays. Tripp sat in a wickerwork chair under a ceiling fan, hands folded, looking out at the garden. He was thinking of nothing in particular. A chair beside him creaked as someone sat down. It was Meg. How are you doing? Tripp considered the question. Looking at his hands, he noted with some satisfaction that his fingers were healing, although the nails were still torn. I'm all right. What about you? I thought I'd pay a visit to our friend in the next ward. Want to come along? Tripp only rose in reply. As they walked along the arcade, they passed a pair of nurses wearing white surgical masks. At their approach, the nurses inclined their heads politely, but kept their distance. They had arrived in Antigua two days ago. With the yacht repaired, the journey had taken three days, with frequent breaks to keep the engine from overheating. Purified water and magnesium salts had kept their destructive impulses at bay, but it was unclear what the lasting effects would be. As they walked, Meg said softly, You know, when I close my eyes, I still see them. Tripp knew what she meant. Whenever his own eyes were closed, he saw the octopus lights blinking softly in the darkness. The pattern had been permanently branded onto his subconscious, broadcasting a message that would always be there. Magnesium controlled the urge, but did not eliminate it entirely. And he was not the only one. Meg's elbow, he saw, had been freshly bandaged. They reached a room in the adjoining ward. Inside, Ellis was seated in bed, his notes spread across his lap. His throat was swathed in gauze. The shears had missed his carotid artery by only a few millimeters. As they entered, Ellis looked up. When they asked him how he was doing, he studied his own hands before speaking. The bruises on his knuckles had faded. I'm well enough. I suppose. Looking at the notes on the bedspread, Tripp recognized the pictures and sketches that he had taken of the octopus school. I hope you aren't having second thoughts about your decision. Ellis made a dismissive gesture. When the yacht was a few miles from shore, he had taken the bucket with the last remaining octopus and tipped it overboard, watching as it slid under the glassy surface. Even if they took precautions to avoid infection, the risk of contagion had been too great. It's a big ocean, Ellis said now, his voice a whisper. There are other discoveries to be made, and as you said, our first responsibility is to the living, although the dead deserve our respect as well. Tripp merely nodded. After another minute of small talk, he left the others alone, sensing that they wanted to speak privately. As he headed for the door, he caught Meg's eye. She smiled at him, a trace of sadness still visible in her face then turned back to the man in the hospital bed. Outside, on the covered walk, the sun was setting, its last rays shining through the trellis. As Tripp headed down the arcade, the slats of the trellis alternately hid and revealed the sunset, 
reminding him briefly of the lights that he had seen in the sea. He had almost reached the end of the walkway when he realized that his left hand was creeping toward his lips. Trip halted. Up ahead, the garden was only a few steps away. With an effort, he lowered his hand, his gaze fixed on the tips of his fingers. He waited for the impulse to fade, as it always did. Finally, after what seemed like a long time, it passed. He exhaled. Then, stuffing his hands in his pockets, he headed for the garden, keeping his eyes turned away from the light. There you go. I hope you've enjoyed that little serial there. Eh? It's, it's quite nice to, to dip into them as well and have like a little or a longer story on Starships over. So it's that time now where I just really want to, you know, just sit back, just and chat really just, you know, what's gone on Starship so far and District Wonders and watch, you know, what have I got planned for 2013? Just a time, I do this every year, just a time, but I'd normally kind of just have a, a, a one special show dedicated to me waffling, waffling on, you know, that's, that in-between time, between Christmas and New Year, it's always a nice little time just to have a, have a chat with you, see what's going on. Now, I don't know if you can hear as well what's going on and what has gone on. We have a new little puppy in the house. He has two Dormans, which come up to me waist, and we've got now Ralph, who is a Cocker Spaniel. Apparently, working-class Cocker Spaniel, but when we got him insured, the lady on the end of the telephone said, there's no such thing as a working cocker spaniel. I don't know if you can hear him there barking on. Shut up, man! <laughs> so again, a big happy Christmas. You know, I hope you've had a, a fantastic time. Whatever religion you celebrate, I hope you've had a nice time over these festive holidays and you're looking forward to the new year. I'm going to have a, you know, a, just a downright cracking 2013. So... 2012, it has been a bit of a, a good year for me personally. Do you know, I don't know, most kind of know now. I'm kind of struck sometimes with a little bit of anxiety. I've, I've had it since I was about 20. Do you know what I mean? Too much happy baggy when I was a baby. <laughs> and I think that's what it was down to anyways. So sometimes I kind of I get low on that. But 2012 has been a bit of a good year. I, I think I had a little bit of it. Oh, I don't know. Sometime, but it kind of, you know, if you, if you know you kind of, your anxiety, I know that's kind of a weird thing to talk about, but you've just got to kind of face it and jump into it and just jump into the kind of what you're struggling with. And the more you do it, the more, like I said, I've had this kind of, you know, I could write a books and books and books on the subject of your kind of little devices you use to kind of get through it. But on that side of things, it's been quite good. I've been quite chirpy and quite happy. Do you know what I mean? I've been trying to look after myself as well since probably, I think probably August, you know, after my holidays there, July, August. Really been trying to look after myself and still, you know, struggling to lose weight. But I've been going actually swimming for quite a long time there now. I've been, and most times in a week, it's like, say, seven days a week. But it's been about five days a week I've been trying to do 45 minutes swimming. Every time I go, and it it seems to be working. You know what I mean? I'm kind of whether I'm kind of I don't know. I see, it seems to be working, but I'm enjoying it. Do you know what I mean? I don't like to kind of hedge me bets and say, "Oh, I'm getting fitter and everything," but I'm really enjoying it. And like I say, forty five minutes, you come out. You know, sometimes you fight with yourself. You know, when, you, when you're doing kind of activities like that, going and I'm kind of grumbly right through the the swimming in the last ten minutes. You think, "Why the bloody hell I did it?" So I've been doing that. So, you know, I've been looking after myself 
And for Christmas as well, we've also got a row machine. And the intention is, and it's actually where I'll be able to listen to quite a few stories. It's half an hour each day as well to do rowing and the swimming. Yes, I, yes I'm getting quite fit. I'm trying to, like I say, you know, 46, got to look after myself. So on that kind of health side, I'm fine. You know, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, everyone else I'm hoping is having a good time. I know Neil Clark from Clark's World had a bit of a, you know, poor bugger, had a bit of a crap year, 2012. He's had everything, you know, I think he had a heart attack at one stage, you know, so I want to send out wishes as well. Neil, I just hope everything's now on the mend and you're getting through, you know, all these kind of health issues and you can kind of see a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Because he has me bleating on, oh, I've been doing it, you know, and I know there is probably people out there who's had a crappy time, but I've got thoughts with you, you know, and I know Starship Sofa sends thoughts over to, to Clark's world as well, and Neil especially, to get get himself sorted out. You know, it's it's one of them things, to, you know, to, to be faced with that kind of, you know, told the news that you've, you know, your heart's kind of given up and stuff like that's hideous. So, Neil, honestly, get yourself well and, like I say, hopefully there is light now at the end of the tunnel for you. 2013 will be a good year. So, strange as it may seem, you know, 2012, I was well, low, I've been a bit chirpy when, because what was fantastic was District of Wonders, do you know what I mean? And that took a lot of kind of getting together, you know, and I kind of just to get this network up and running was a, a, an emotional time for me. But what I noticed most about it is what when it was done and when it was finished, and that, you know, you kind of let your reins go, you let your babies go, and you know, Larry's looking after basically tears for ter- terrify. Now, it, you know, Larry does the with share. There's Jack there as well, and I'm not. I'm going to get into you know what the kind of work and help share does, but you know, and Dave over at Protecting Pulp, it's you let them go, and then it's I'm kind of lost. I'm kind of what, what do I do? And I had such a bit of a low ebb. With, you know, everything to do with kind of shows and everything like that. And I don't know if anyone noticed it, you know what I mean? But it just, for about a month after District of Wonders kind of went online, you know, like in the, the full, you know, got this, the site up and the pulp was running and the crime was running and Tails was going. I just was like, well, what do I do? You know what I mean? And I was on such a low ebb. But I've kind of gotten through that bit of a, a brick wall there now. And, and if you've noticed, I've started doing a lot of interviews again. And that's what I enjoy doing. You know, I enjoy Starship Sova. It, you know, although, yes, I'm sitting in a room here, and I've mentioned this a few times, by myself. Do you know what I mean? It is like we're talking to each other. Do you know what I mean? I'm talking to my friends, you know, and we're just sharing what we're like. And I know, you know, although I know, don't know every one of you, but I know quite a few, you know, you've getting in touch, and it's lovely that. And that's what I enjoy, just sitting down, doing a show, doing the interview, speaking to people and having, you know, a, a grand time. And it took us a while to get back into that because probably, you know, getting them shows off to a flying start, making sure we had enough stories, making sure we had enough narrations going. You know, I didn't want just like six stories done. And, you know, after six six weeks, you know, they're kind of running out. So, you know, I, I really wanted that kind of done. And like I say, it just... Afterwards, I felt a little bit kind of flat, but, you know, what, what can I say? And being nominated again for, you know, a Hugo Award, that was an immense thing. And I couldn't give a monkey's uncle if we win again, you know what I mean? It was just lovely to be nominated, to kind of be up there. And if we don't get it again, do you know what I mean? That's It's fine by me, you know what I mean? I've been nominated three times, I've won the thing. How cool is that? Do you know what I mean? Starship Sofa's kind of set a mark in the sand there and everyone knows the show there now, so I'm quite chuffed about that. So, 
that was lovely to be included. It's funny as, as well that I, I just don't go to the kind of, you know, I'm all online. I don't go to these kind of science fiction conventions, Worldcon, and, and I know I think Worldcon's coming over here in, in 2014. There's, a, there's probably a 90% chance I'll not be there. And actually... I'd say 50% of it is due to work commitments. We only get a certain time off in, in the kind of the, the, Christ, not the Christmas, the holiday week, you know, the, the, the six weeks holidays. And that's when I go away with the family. And inevitably, like, Worldcon's at that kind of back end where I can't take holidays then because I've you know, already took them. So it's a bit niggly. But I don't like doing live. Do you know what I mean? Not live. I don't like being, you know... I'm a totally different person. You know, if you, if you meet us out, I'm a bit of a shy lad. Do you know what I mean? I would say I'm a shy lad. You know, I'm not kind of forward coming. So doing conventions and everything like that, going to them, it's not my bag of fish anyways, you know? So I'm more online. And like I say, that's why I kind of like, you know, doing these kind of workshops and these events and everything like that. It's all online. It's all just, you know, again, it's me in my living room, you know, trying to organize these things. And that's exactly what I like. And don't get us wrong, they're, they're stressful as enough, you know what I mean? And that's like I say, just that, that's all, oh, that, just a little whiskey every now and again when I do these is, is fine, you know what I mean? That's what gets us over. But that's what I enjoy, you know, I enjoy doing Starship Sova. I mean, I've realised, because there's a couple of times, you know, I think we've been doing Starship Sova since 2006 there now. You do get troughs and peaks and you think, is, shall I, am I, is it time enough to give it up? And, you know, you go through these and you think, yeah, it probably is, you know what I mean? We've had one run now, we've done our best. And then I'll be thinking, you know, two months into saying I've, I've given it up, well, what would I do? Do you know what I mean? And I actually, like you say, down to it, I, I love doing, I love doing Starships over. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it gets, you know, trying to hunt out stories and everything like that, but it's it's part of, you know, it's part of the thing. So I really, you know, love doing it and I love doing the online things. What I kind of really, you know, has kind of helped us as well is getting Cher Eves to come on board as well and to kind of take over, you know, and look after things and kind of get things. Cher is the editor now over at Tales of Terrify and Crime City Central. And don't get us wrong, you know, Larry and Jack and Dave have got a lot going on there. Well, I mean, Fred's over at Pulp, so we don't, Fred's all right with Dave. But it's them, you know, run them two shows there. And Cher's just done so much work and helped me out as well. And it, it made us realise as well that I needed someone probably on Starship Sova. So I brought in, you know, I asked a little kind of shout out on Twitter and everything. And Adam Pure, you know, answered the call for an assistant editor on Starship Sova. And that's just... Again, it's taken some of the burden off. You know, it's kind of taken the niggly thing. Making, it's this stressful thing of just not wanting to run out of stories. Because I, I think I mentioned this a while ago. I remember when Steve Ely got to a point like that, you know, and I helped him out and give him a few stories over at Scarepod. You, you get to that and you're thinking, that just is a nightmare, you know. So chair came along, you know, and what Harry over at Tales of Terrify was assistant editor there. And, you know, Harry had done a year and has, has left there. And, you know, a big thank you to Harry for all he's done over there. But it was just left in limbo. And I was thinking, oh, we're going to just run into a ground here. And then, you know, I, I asked Cher just to help out for a little bit. And Cher, what can I say? Thank you so much, do you know what I mean, for, for coming on and kind of helping out. And Adam as well, being fantastic. It's been, I tell you what, it's been really good. And I'm talking about, you know, Tales to Terrify as well, is having 
Scott Dinsdale over there as well. Scott has designed and done everything with, you know, the kind of the making of Tales to Terrify Volume One. And that book came has came out and has been a blinding success. You know, I'm I'm really pleased. I didn't think it would have as big a sales as Starship Silver Stories. And I know Starship Silver Stories 3 was a bit of an anti-climax for me. Probably because, you know, you, you always kind of start off with a big kick, you know, when Volume 1 came out. But, you know, as, as sales go and as you kind of help, you know, to keep the, these four shows going there now, Tales of Terrify has been fantastic, you know. And it's quite interesting. The, you know, are probably, they're probably 50-50 now, the paper sales, the e-book sales. You know, a lot of people more are buying the e-books, and that's fine by me. Do you know what I mean? It's... Um, it's it's easy peasy lemon squeezy the ebook side of things, so a big thank you to Scott who's come on and Scott has done wonders. You know you, you need kind of key players. To, yes, I can kind of put these together and that, but to, to get things out and sorted how I want, you need certain key players. And Scott Dinsdale is another key player. You know in Starships over now the kind of the manufacturer of of District of Wonders. Anything that's needing artistic wise, I'm kind of running to Scott. You know, and kind of just saying, Scott, is there any chance of doing this? And I asked, I think the last time I asked was for some logos for each of the fact articles, you know, just get them all sorted out. You know, a couple of, a couple of weeks later, there, there they are, all these different designs done and dusted for the fact articles. And that's fantastic. Scott, you know what I mean? What can I say? It's, it was kind of, I'll tell you why I'm kind of, you know, a big thank you to Scott, because I just know how much work D had with, you know, volumes one, two, and three of of the, you know, I just know how much work goes into doing these things, you know, putting these books together. And it was always a kind of, I certainly didn't want Scott to be kind of swamped with work. And I think in the end, there was a little bit much, and it's, I'm sure it's all down to like the, the art side of it, you know, like the kind of graphics and getting pictures and stuff like that. So we're still hopefully developing that and kind of working around trying to make it a lot easier for, you know, for everyone as well. And again, this is where Scott comes in. You know, when I've been doing these workshops, I have loved these, but it's all, you still need, you know, it's, yes, you can have a, a writer talking, but you still need some decent images and some nice, like kind of power slides and power slides, is that right? But yeah, power slides. And it's just, it's nice to have all that. And then Scott comes along and designs these things and, it's just stunning and Amy can vouch for us Amy H. Sturgis can vouch when he's done the Amy's lectures you know the PowerPoint slides for the the Hunger Games and the Sherlock Holmes ones have just been I hope it's fun for Scott because it's really you know it, it's showing Scott's talent off to like you know to, to everyone who comes on it's just fantastic Scott you know what I mean so big thank you to Scott who's kind of come on board and is now realising hey there's some work involved here uh, you know, so there we go. So 2013, I always want, you know, I, I never kind of want to sit still with Starships over or District of Wonders and like say, hence the Tales of Terrify volume one. I always want to kind of do things and, you know, and just run with them, see how they go, see what kind of, just to keep it exciting, to be quite honest. And one of the things I've got planned, and this is honestly, listen, this is where, you know, anybody's got any ideas, do you know what I mean? I've only got a certain little brain, you know what I mean? I can think of everything. If you've got some ideas, anything, you know, starshipsover at gmail.com, I'll certainly read it. I'll get in touch with you. We'll work something out. If you've got a cracking idea, just something to do, do you know what I mean? Something to kind of make it interesting and things like that. 
One of the ideas that I've got is, and this is just like a kind of a mini, you know, it's actually just to do starships over live. Over over here in, in kind of England, we've got, you know, Coronation Street, we've got the soap operas, and they've all had a little go of doing it live. Well, that's my intention as well, is to do starships over live and basically get a couple of writers to, and whether they've got their own little kind of, say, 500-word short stories already or maybe ask them to kind of sneaky write one, you know, get a couple of writers to read out, you know, on video live their their stories and then get, and I've actually asked Amy and JJ Campanella, Jim, to do their sections live. You know, basically what Amy does, you know, I talk about it, but just hear it and see Amy do it live and, and the same with Jim with his science news, get that to do it live. And that's like I say, that's all what I've got planned for. And I'm trying to, you know, trying to probably get that March, April, sometime around there to try and get a live. But it all depends on the software package. Do you know, at the minute I'm using GoToMeeting for these webinars and you can do it two ways. You can have a webinar where everyone sees my screen and I think I can get 200 people in to come in and, and have a look, 100 people. Or I can do it with the, the video streams where you only get 25. If anyone's out there who knows a system that's kind of, re- it's got to be reliable. Do you know, I know there's kind of lots of ones out there that are just, you know, web-based and everything like that. And sometimes I've just ha- I've had a little couple of tests with Josh and they just haven't held up straight away. There's like sound issues and things like that. So I know GoToMeeting is, is you know, it's, it's rock steady, stable, but we need the, the likes of, say, fix, six live video streams and the possibility of more people watching it than the 25, you know. And what the intention is, is to incorporate this Starships Over Live with probably a month-long fun drive for Starships Over, for District Wonders, really, and, you know, use that as a kind of a, a launching point for the fun drive. You know, like I say, have a month long and the first week, you know, have Starship Sofa live and just try and get, that's what I want, you know, as many seats, attendee places as possible and get it as cheap as chips, you know, make it just like you say, a five at to come in to kind of, to watch it. So it's not the normal, the normal prices when we do these things is, you know, it's £20, I think it is, for a ticket for the, for the Kim, I'm seeing Kim Stanley Robinson, for the Spider Robinson show. You know, that's an intimate thing, and that's, that's, you're paying for Spider's time there as well. But for us, for doing a live show, you know, and I, it's just a relaxed one, but it'll be me, you know, saying hello and then introducing Amy and Amy doing her, you know, uh, looking back at genre history and that. I want to do, you know, that be Starship Sofa live for this fun drive. But again, it's all dependent on if we can get six streams, video streams, where we can have probably, say, maybe 50 or 100 seats, you know, even more would be fantastic, you know, whether that comes off or not. That's one of the things, you know. Another one of the things to kind of, like, say, well, I want to do, um, like, a month-long fun drive and just, you know, kind of keep it local, not, you know, do anything silly, but just, you know, on the show, have different things just to you know, to sell, to kind of, to raise some money. One of the ideas, and I've had lots of emails about this and I've spoken to Ben about it and he's great with it, is get a probably around about five, maybe 10 meter long prints of the District of Wonders, the artwork, you know, the the kind of the big banner that Ben Wooten designed. Get Ben to sign it. Get myself, Larry, Jack and... Dave, to sign it as well, it'll, it'll have to go right around the world, get it all signed and have these 
on sale as well, you know, because a number of people have emailed about that, you know, that, that artwork's kind of stunning. And it, it would be fantastic to get these. These would be, God, I would really probably buy one myself, <laughs> cut me one throat, and I'll get one myself. Do you know what I mean? To have that artwork, I'd have, especially Ben sign it, and all me, you know, the lads sign it, that would be fantastic. So that's another idea for the fun drive is to do, you know, to, to do this kind of the artwork, get that in, in like special printed. So that, there's a thing. Like, see, if anybody can think of anybody, you know, if any ideas, please get, you know, get, get that sort of, get in touch with us. Another one is to have a, like a set price for someone to come on and host the show. Yes. <laughs> Let me step down for a week. No, we're coming up to show 300, you know, it's not that kind of far away in the distance. And it would be nice to kind of auction that off and get, you know, someone to come and host the show 300 because that'll be a special time as well. So that's another idea, you know. And, like, say, hopefully get a few books and things off, right, as signed and get them up for auction as well or, you know, or put a price on them. Like, say, if anyone's got any ideas, this is, I could really do with some help there. I could do with some help, you know, organising this fund, this fund month. That would be great if you just want to come on. Honestly, help. I am desperate for help. I always want help. You know what I mean? Ideas and help is what I kind of dream of. So, and I think as well, I'll get volumes one, two, and three. You know, I'll get a pack of them and get them signed off. You know, I'll sign them myself and have them as like a little, little idea, you know, so someone can kind of buy them. So, I'll tell you what, another idea I had, because I know, you know, I've been in touch with, Gene Wolf, and it would be to organise, you know, to kind of set up where we can get a, a bidder to interview Gene Wolf as one of the prizes. Whether that happens, you know, because Gene Wolf's now the, the grand master of science fiction this year. It, it might not happen, I have no idea, but that was just one of me kind of rattling off me, you know, the thoughts going round. Oh, that would be a good little thing. So there you go. What else is planned in. 2013 well possibly you know i've kind of dropped an email to scott i haven't actually heard back yet so this might not be on the cards but possibly a volume four of starship silver stories you know be nice to kind of get that out in the maybe the june july time whether like i say it it's easy peasy for me to kind of rattle off some stories see if i can get some stories off anybody but the hard work comes down to scott you know what i mean and like i say i send an email but it's just being a little bit shy and i was like oh god i've got all this to do again so we'll wait and see but that you know hopefully that'll come off as well starships overs volume four we missed a year and like i say it's purely down the amount of work that goes into these things it's just scary 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 so those are a couple of things you know what I'm kind of got me me sights on. Yes, I'm loving you know doing the kind of the science fiction writers workshops. That's you know that's fantastic. Just listen to these kind of legend guys out there talk about themselves, you know, and you know like tips and hints on writing, you know. But really let them talk about themselves as well. That's you know it's that's been special. Like say the Joe Haldeman one came along, and to get Joe Haldeman on was just scary, fantastic, brilliant, you know. A few weeks time there, we've got the Spider Robinson one down. It's me kind of aim now is to, to to go after Kim Stanley Robinson. You know how to write science fiction with Kim Stanley Robinson as well. So that's what's in the pipeline. Hopefully, I can kind of snag that off. You know, but you never know these writers. You never know. So the main thing I kind of want to get over, if you've got an idea that kind of you can help fund Starship Sofa, you know, got some ideas, anything like that. 
There was some pictures on, there was an artist over in, in I think it was Australia, who did some rockets, you know, like built up these, these rockets from scrap bits of metal. And I thought that would be fantastic. If anybody can do anything like that, you know what I mean? And we get things like a little kind of shop done like that where I've got these three rockets. One's a flying saucer, one's a rock, and there's two kind of space Age rockets. And I got them from TK Maxx, a chain in, in, and I think actually they're in America as well. They might be called slightly different, but we call them TK Maxx over here. And they're just lovely, you know what I mean? They're just like aluminium, dead light, but metal, finished like brushed metal. And they'll just look dead retro, you know, 50s science fiction Rockets, a bit. One of them is a bit like the Flash Gordon one. I've got a, like a flying saucer one, and then there's like a three pronged attack ship, which and I, I love them. You know, if we could get stuff like that on the on the show as well, and you know, put it up and auction it up, that would be fantastic. That would be, I would love that. So that's that's some of the th- things planned for 2013. Again, I can't, you know, kind of keep on going over this, but if you have any ideas for, for that, it would be fantastic for, for 2030. Any ideas at all, give us a shout. But the main thing is, you know, have a brilliant, a brilliant, brilliant New Year. You know, I hope you've had a fantastic Christmas. Again, thoughts, if you're feeling a bit down and crappy, listen, I send the, the thoughts of love out to you. So hopefully you'll be back on your feet and get 2013 to be a fantastic year. You know, Starship Sova's going to be there. We're always going to be free. That's our kind of mantra there. None of this kind of stuff to kind of, we'll always be out there free. The show, the main show will be free, you know, and we'll get, I'll try me damnedest. And I know Adam is, and I know Adam is trying, getting some, trying to get some authors, which are just like, oh, right, go on, Adam, go for that. Yes, I don't want to give anything away or anything. But Adam's going for the biggins, do you know what I mean? And that's just fantastic. You know, he's got the, the kind of, the bit between his teeth and he's trying his best. So, we're, we're trying to get big stories in there with big writers in there with new writers as well. We're, we're getting certainly some new stories from new writers. You know, I, I remember Return to Earth by Ryan. I forget Ryan's surname there when we did that one. And what a story. What a story that was. So look out for, you know, some good stories coming. If you've got a little idea for a fact article, you know, maybe a one-off fact article, or you've got an idea to run with it monthly, please, you know, we are certainly not desperate for them, but if you've got a good idea, you know, I'm all ears there, I'll certainly listen to it, and listen to your kind of proposal, your elevator pitch, and give us a shout, certainly give us a shout. So do listen to the other shows, you know, Tales to Terrify, that's just, and I think it was, it was Larry who just took that and ran with his own vein, you know, and first week came out and I knew Larry's off to a flying start. I don't need to intervene here or anything, you know, and that's the, the kind of genesis for, you know, the pulp and crime, you know, Jack and Dave there. They've just ran with them their own way and that's what, you know, made them brilliant. You know, download figures are brilliant for them. I couldn't be more happier, you know. So things are going in the right direction. Big wooden desk there. Who's, who's bloody touch wood? So enjoy 2013. Keep in touch. You know what I mean? I'd love to hear from you all and just have a fantastic year. Do you know what I mean? You know, again, I'll have a little, little pour, a little whiskey, have a little drink there. Have a good, good new year. Until next week. Just like to say, good night from me. Survive.
this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you.